It's going to be the age of humankind standing up for something pure and something right. What a bunch of garbage, liberal, Democrat, conservative, Republican. It's all there to control you, two sides of the same coin. Two management teams bidding for control, the CEO job of Slavery Incorporated. The truth is out there in front of you, but they lay out this buffet of lies. I'm sick of it, and I'm not going to take a bite out of it. Do you got me? Resistance is not futile. We're going to win this thing. Humankind is too good. We're not a bunch of underachievers. We're going to stand up, and we're going to be human beings. We're going to get fired up about the real things, the things that matter, creativity, and the dynamic human spirit that refuses to submit. Well, that's it. That's all i got to say. It's in your court. That's quite a vista behind you. Yes, I'm broadcasting from a boiler room in a house in Cortona in southern Tuscany. Let me see. This is uh, some equipment from a vacuum. I don't know. It's all it's all uh, it's all pretty ugly. It does. It's not what I thought was going to be behind you. When when we scheduled this recording session, I kind of imagined you'd be on like a beautiful sun kissed balcony and the ocean would be behind you or something like that. Or or maybe I'd see the Alps uh, somewhere in the shot. So uh, I feel a little bit let down, but I I trust that you're uh, enjoying being outside of Toronto. When I do my podcasting work, I get into a state of sort of self-abnegation. I consider podcasting to be a very sort of monk-like activity. Like you you deprive yourself of worldly goods so that you can give all of yourself to the podcast audience. Despite that, I have been having a pretty good time in Europe. Uh, I was in uh, <laughs> Geneva. Uh, I stopped off in Vevey. Uh, I was in Florence for a couple days and now I'm in Tuscany for a week at a very nice house here with my girlfriend and her family. And uh, I know uh, the listeners are probably hearing that and are very upset and jealous. And what I will just say is the 18 months that I had before this were horrendous. So just uh, getting into good vibes mindset now after that. Well, it's not just the listeners that are upset and jealous. I mean, you saw uh, the state I'm in last week uh, when we recorded in person. So there's probably rarely been a recording session. And I'm going to stop myself in mid-sentence now because Will just took a sip of what I can only imagine is uh, some absolutely delectable Tuscan wine. So he's just rubbing it in. But there's probably never been a recording session of this show where your two co-hosts have been so kind of removed from one another uh, in terms of their spiritual uh, states of being. Uh, I am, as I have uh, complained now several times on mic the past few weeks, pretty exhausted with an absolutely uh, mammoth project that I've been working on that's uh, not finished yet. And Will is in Italy, uh, having just been in Geneva. So, uh, you know, need I say more? But our dedication to the podcast remains, of course, and notwithstanding how jealous I am of Will's location, I'm just going to have to take him at his word that he's actually in Tuscany, because honestly, it really looks like he's in a closet. There's like tubes behind him, even just your audio as you're coming through. It sounds cavernous. I'll just have to take your word for it that you're not broadcasting from just the basement of your uh, of your apartment. But in any case, we have a classic movie to discuss on this week's episode. Uh, I did just want to begin with a little bit of of housekeeping, I suppose. There was something that came to us via a listener called Mark, uh, who sent this clip from The Daily Show, this recent clip from The Daily Show, my way. This is from a write-up in The Wrap, 
the headline, Trump supporters at Wisconsin rally say Robin Williams' film Man of the Year proves 2020 election fraud. Now, not everybody uh, listening to this uh, will have been listening to the show long enough to have heard our Man of the Year episode. Kind of ancient Michael and us history at this point. I don't remember how many years ago we recorded on it. But in the canon of Michael and us movies, uh, Man of the Year is certainly a top 10 film for me and, and I think for you as well. So if I can just briefly synopsize Man of the Year in case we have some new listeners, apologies to older listeners who've heard this many times. Man of the Year is a 2006 film starring Robin Williams as a John Stewart-like TV fake news anchor. And like right there already is one of the problems with the movie. I mean, it's about a really cutting edge TV comedian, somebody who really tells it like it is, somebody with his you know, finger on the pulse of the nation. And God love him, all due respect to him. 2006 Robin Williams was, you know, he was not 1982 Robin Williams. Let's put it that way. Anyway, he decides to run for president uh, because it's it's time somebody got out there and uh, uh, told the clowns in Congress what's what. That's right. One one day he's on air and he has a meltdown and he says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And then he gets elected president. I mean, not quite, but basically. Anyway, the essential thing about Man of the Year and the reason why it's such important Michael and us canon uh, is because it's a movie that invests itself heavily in, you know, the premise that Will just outlined. And, you know, I think all of the marketing of the film was very much packaged that way as well. It was like, what if Jon Stewart not only ran for president, but won? What would that be like? Except it turns out that there's a B story in Man of the Year involving electronic voting machines that have you know, been contracted out to some private company. So the whole movie, which sets up this provocative premise that, you know, Robin Williams gets elected president, undoes itself at the end by revealing that actually Robin Williams was never elected president. The voting machines malfunction. So that's the background on Man of the Year. Now, uh, the Daily Show correspondent Jordan Klepper went to this, you know, Trump rally in uh, Wisconsin uh, and started interviewing people. I'm not going to be a conspiracist or anything like that, one woman told him, but I just watched a movie last week with Robin Williams in it. It was called Man of the Year. And guess what? They had election fraud back then. The machines are switching to doing things electronically and they were counting wrong. Another woman reminded Klepper to watch out for any triangular or circular symbols related to pizza joints because they are often used for, quote, promoting pedophilia. A triangle would mean a pedophile made that pizza, he clarifies, to a solid confirmation from the woman. Anyway, the listener who sent this argued that uh, The Daily Show should have sought us uh, out for comment, and frankly, uh, I agree. I think that the only two groups of people uh, on Earth that are keeping uh, the memory of 2006's Man of the Year alive are QAnon people going to Trump rallies and uh, Michael and us nation. So it'd be nice to get a little recognition for that. I disagree. I think once we accept institutional validation from an institute, not just any institution, but the the Daily Show, the Daily Show, for God's sake, then uh, the podcast, we should immediately die if we did that, like, like die. Um, no, the thing is, Will, that's, that's where you're wrong. Uh, you're an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations, there are no peoples, there are no Russians, there are no Arabs. There is only one holistic system of systems, one vast and immense, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars, petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, rins, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on the planet. This is the natural order of things. Anyway, in case we haven't teased it up enough, uh, we watch Network this week, and uh, it's a pretty good movie in my opinion. And now, the distinguished television news commentator, 
Mr. Howard Beale. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks' time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program a week from today. What the hell's going on? Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. Network, 1976. Mad as hell, not going to take it anymore. This is one of two movies that won our monthly superdelegate poll for our superdelegate patron tier. By the way, that's <laughs> patreon.com slash Michael and us for $5 a month. You can get an extra episode every week uh, for, for $10 a month. You can get to vote on episodes. And for $50 a month, uh, Luke and I will come over to your house and uh, do whatever you want. Uh, anything. <laughs> uh, anything. <laughs> and by the way, speaking of election conspiracies, I'm just going to go on record with my plan to rig the next month's uh, superdelegate election because I think our listeners, uh, this is the second time that they've figured out uh, this is the listeners paying a $10 a month into the superdelegate tier who get to vote each month on making us watch something of their choice. I think they've figured out that if there's a 50-50 tie on the final ballot, they'll make us do both films. And I think we should have a constitutional convention. You know, I think we should get the Founding Fathers back together and undo that precedent. We need a we need a constitutional amendment or something. Because even though we created the superdelegates as a check against the feral democratic masses, I feel uh, like the superdelegates have become uh, too democratic and we need to introduce an electoral college within them to put a check on that. I disagree. I like that there was a tie for a second time just for the simple basic reason that we didn't have to have a long discussion on what the movie would be. It's nice to just have like two episodes a month, not just one, but two episodes a month where the decision is out of our hands and, and we just do it. I guess uh, on some level, maybe it's a surprise that we've never talked about this movie, but I think like RoboCop, the other superdelegate choice for this month, it's one of those movies where I think we haven't talked about it because everything about it is sort of on the surface. Nevertheless, uh, I am eager to talk about it now, having seen it again, I think only for the second time in my life. My second time watching it as well. When did you first see it? It was seven or eight years ago. I really don't remember too much about the circumstances. I think I watched it with uh, some mutual friends of ours. But beyond that, uh, I don't remember anything about the circumstances I watched it in. I just remember uh, that I saw it and I enjoyed it. And uh, I enjoyed watching it again. Uh, It's great. I mean, it's a little weird to watch now. It's a bit dated, all of the problems and issues issues that it raises have kind of been solved. But nevertheless, when you kind of put yourself in the 1976 headspace, it's it's interesting sort of as a time capsule, you know? The story of Network centers on Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, a veteran TV news anchor whose nightly broadcast on a network called UBS, that stands for Union Broadcasting System, basically it could be ABC, it could be NBC, uh, his broadcast is consistently last place in the ratings. Uh, He's just been let go from his job, and on one of his final broadcasts, he throws caution to the wind, has a tantrum, and says that he plans to kill himself live on air on the next show, because surely that would fix the ratings. He says he's done with bullshit. That kind of sums up Howard Beale's politics, you know? He's (laughs) anti-bullshit, which is one reason why Howard Beale, just as an archetype, has kind of been claimed by people all across the political spectrum, often people who I think have a not very clear memory of the movie. 
The network wants to get rid of him immediately, but the longtime president of the news division, Max Schumacher, played by William Holden, is also a longtime friend and admirer of Howard Beale and begs the network to let Beale have one last broadcast for a more respectable goodbye. However, between the two broadcasts, the ratings skyrocket. The network is overwhelmed with calls and letters. Howard Beale mania has swept the nation to the point where the nightly news is not only the highest rated nightly news show, but it's up there in the top five alongside All in the Family and um, I don't know, I forget, I forget which other 70s shows they mentioned. Like Senator Bullworth, years later, Beale has captured the heart of a nation by speaking to its discontent. Do you want to talk about the most famous scene of the movie, the mad as hell scene? I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to riot, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out? You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Something forgot about this scene is that you know when you see it exerted when you hear people remember it when you see the picture there's just the still photo of peter finch freaking out in front of the clocks you know you always think that there's a little bit more going on to the speech but actually it's this sort of not particularly focused rant against just everything wrong with america whether it's you know violent crime whether it's mediocrity on our airwaves it's not an edward r murrow speech you know it's also not a Bullworth speech. It's just it's just free-flowing rage. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's the the brilliance of it is uh, is the broadness. You know, the speech is this kind of uh, kaleidoscope of ideology. You could really project uh, almost anything onto it. You can see the sensibilities of, you know, Gerald Ford era America, Jimmy Carter, Nixon, uh, Reagan. You can see all of those reflected in the speech. You can interpret uh, parts of it anyway as a kind of uh, backlash against the 1960s uh, from a nation that's, you know, weary of uh, social reform and revolution. You can hear it as an anti-establishment populist rant against against the powers that be. You can interpret it as a call for revolution. It really is all of those things and also none of them, which is obviously a reflection of the film's thesis, which we'll talk about some more. Uh, I will just say though, I think that it is far from the most important monologue in the film in terms of telling you what network is actually about. There are two other speeches at least, both given by TV executives of different levels that I think are much more direct statements of the film's thesis than Howard Beale's famous speech, which is of course how the film is mostly remembered. Something that I know we're both interested in is this archetype in the 1970s of non-ideological third-party political candidates, or if not third-party, at least not explicitly aligned political candidates. You know, I'm thinking of uh, Palantine from Taxi Driver, but also the candidate from Nashville, who's best as I can tell, seems to be running a sort of Ross Perot-like libertarian throw-the-bums-out campaign. You mentioned the backlash to the 60s. These weird populist characters in the 1970s movies are sort of reacting to that as well as to Watergate. They seem radical, but what they really want is a sort of return to normalcy. The Jeff Daniels character in the newsroom, you know, with his Howard Beale-like monologue that starts that show is sort of in that lineage. Whereas I'm glad you brought up Man of the Year because like he's a Howard Beale-like character, but he's a very different socio-political context. Well, I agree with that. And I think the explanation uh, is just that when Network was made in the 1970s, uh, the death of ideology hadn't really occurred yet. In 1976, uh, class politics still exists in America and elsewhere. People haven't given up on the idea that society can be transformed in one way or another. On both the left and the right, people haven't really given up on that idea. But then all of the phenomena that Network observes then carried on for 30 more years, and uh, you got the end of history. You got the death of ideology and forward momentum and progress announced exuberantly as the new cultural and political orthodoxy. So by the time you get to the early 2000s, the ideology such as it is that comes through in these Howard Beale-esque spiels has even fewer edges. It's somehow even smoother and broader. The one thing I would say, I mean, I think that this is a very prescient film um, and it gets a tremendous amount right. And uh, I think that ultimately it's about a lot more than just TV. Uh, But a friendly criticism I might make of it, even though it's not really a criticism because it's not as if uh, the filmmakers had a crystal ball. I mean, the one thing that it didn't anticipate was the partisanization of uh, media. So the fact that you can have like MSNBC Howard Beale and you can also have Fox News Howard Beale. This was something that was figured out in the 90s and it really was a break from the kind of TV network culture that the film network was itself responding to, where you had a very small number of big TV networks, and then you had these guys uh, in the mold of Howard Beale, who, you know, we learned before his deterioration, before his uh, angry rants, before he's mad as hell, was, quote, a Mandarin of television, the grand old man of news, uh, with a hut rating of 16 and a 28 audience share. So Howard Beale was one of these guys like a Walter Cronkite or somebody like that. 
He was one of the kind of bland, trustworthy faces of just a few networks who, you know, while in competition with with each other, formed uh, just a small constellation of kind of mass media conglomerates through which people got their news and entertainment and information. That really began to change uh, in the 90s for a few reasons. But the biggest one was that Roger Ailes began to figure out that you can do exactly this, but you can actually, in a sense, invert it. So instead of coming up with a kind of a broad message we are trying to compete for, you know, a universal audience share. You know, you're speaking to a median viewer. Uh, instead, you're speaking to a median viewer within a very clearly defined niche. So that's how you get something like Fox News, which isn't trying to compete for the same viewership that other networks is trying to compete for. It's trying to kind of carve off its own little slice and then embed its particular style as firmly within that slice of the market as it possibly can. And then, you know, since then you've had liberal networks basically doing the same thing. Now this is changing tack a little bit, but you talked about uh, Ross Perotism earlier and these various fictional kind of third party candidates. You know, there's Palantine and Taxi Driver with uh, I can never remember what the slogan is supposed to be, but it's we are the people. It's not the, which is very different than we are the people. <laughs> yeah, ideology is reduced to what word is underlined in that sentence. But in the present day, right, there is somebody who's trying to do this who mysteriously has not unfollowed me on Twitter, uh, despite all of my replies and uh, sarcastic quote tweets. But I'm talking about Andrew Yang, the great uh, centrist accelerationist who with his forward party is trying to take America's a fragmented partisan ecosystem where, don't get me wrong, uh, both sides of that are also kind of shorn of ideology and reduced to kind of pure spectacle and entertainment in the way that the film network is observing. But Yang, being the accelerationist that he is, wants to eliminate even that. So we won't even have edges in the form of these uh, partisan labels, Democrat and Republican. Everything will be subsumed just back into a kind of endlessly broad catch-all soup of cliches about bipartisan partisanship and overcoming our differences and moving forward and making policies based on evidence rather than ideology, etc, etc. So Andrew Yang is actually a prophet is what I'm saying. I couldn't agree more. You're right that network doesn't predict the partisanization of news, but it does predict that the future doesn't belong to a Walter Cronkite type. I understand, I believe the appeal of Walter Cronkite during his many years on air was that he was uh, objective, that he represented the objective point Point of view of America. And so when when he editorialized in any way, like when he wiped away a tear announcing Kennedy's death, or, you know, uh, if he spoke against the Vietnam War in some way, that really meant something that that meant that if he expressed ideology, it, ha it had to be true. Obviously, Walter Cronkite, like anyone with any pretense of objectivity, is very ideological, but that's not his selling feature. And in network, the news broadcast, even though it doesn't become politically partisan, it does begin to foreground ideology. It makes ideology, it makes opinion its selling point in a crowded news marketplace. I think this is something that the film really gets right, and why for me anyway, uh, its prescience uh, is really much wider than just the parts of it that you can think about in relation to TV. The character of Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway, has a monologue quite early in the movie uh, where she says, the American people are turning sullen. They've been clobbered on all sides by Vietnam, Watergate, the inflation, the depression. They've turned off, shot up, and they fucked themselves limp and nothing helps. The American people want somebody to articulate their rage for them. I've been telling you people since I took this job six months ago that I want angry shows. I don't want conventional programming on this network.
network. I want counterculture. I want anti-establishment. So she says a bit more, but that's uh, that's the crux of it. And uh, it's why she teams up with some people from uh, the CPUSA to create a program called the Mao Zedong Hour, in which the network uh, broadcasts footage of people doing terrorism, basically, or, you know, people robbing banks and that kind of thing. So to be extremely and kind of uh, embarrassingly didactic about it, I mean, I think this really predicts the way that modern consumer culture and the neoliberal uh, political project as a whole basically sell everything to us as uh, transgressive and, and edgy and rebellious in some way. You know, when I when I heard this rant, I thought about uh, the luxury clothing store that I pass sometimes when uh, I'm going to get groceries, which has a banner outside of it that implores you uh, as a customer to join the movement with absolutely no hint of, uh, of irony or self-awareness. Or I also thought of the caption on the back of the uh, Monster Assault uh, energy drink. And I don't actually know if these are still in circulation. Uh, if so, uh, I'd really like one. But this appeared a few years ago. Uh, and this is what it says on the back of uh, the camo-colored Monster energy drink. It says, at Monster, we don't get too hung up on politics. We're not for the war, against the war, in quotation marks, or any war for that matter. We put the camo, that's also in quotation marks, pattern on our new monster assault can because we think it looks cool. Plus, it helps fire us up to fight the big multinational companies who dominate the beverage business. <laughs> we'll leave politics to the politicians and just keep doing what we do best, making the meanest energy drinks on the planet. Declare war on the ordinary, grab a monster assault, and viva la revolution. I remember somebody had a viral tweet uh, the first time that appeared where they just they just asked, what stage of capitalism is this? But I mean, the process that you see in network is basically the one that gives us uh, shit like that. It's the one that uh, inspires companies to market even the most banal uh, consumer products as the tools of a movement or as uh, the instruments of rebellion. It's in the political sphere, yeah, represented by people like Andrew Yang, but also frankly, just most mainstream politicians who now use a language that is quite deliberately shorn of, at least on the surface, kind of outward or explicit ideology and which aims to be often as broad as possible. Everything, no matter how banal, you know, whether uh, it's yet another tax cut that is, uh, I don't know, supposed to create thousands of new jobs or something, or the sign outside a luxury clothing store telling you to join a movement, or the back of a Monster Energy drink can, everything is simultaneously banal, but also totally insistent on being revolutionary at the same time. And I feel like that is what the film uh, Network predicts. Now, again, Howard Beale is not the most important character in the movie. A lot of the movie is devoted to various corporate machinations. The William Holden character, Max Schumacher, has a complicated relationship with the programming chief, Diana Christensen. They have a long on-off affair, but he very much represents the old world, whereas she represents something new. She wants to take the Howard Beale broadcasts away from his news division and successfully lobbies to take over the show under the guise of an entertainment show. The nightly news is turned into the Howard Beale show, featuring the mad prophet of the airwaves. In addition to Howard Beale's rants every episode, there's like, what, there's a psychic, there's a magician, there's maybe a, not- there's a 
segment called Vox Populi, in which the three camps represented are yes, no, and uh, I don't know, or something like that. Do you remember, Luke, something this reminded me of? I remember when we were at the Varsity newspaper and you did an interview with Noam Chomsky, and there was a suggestion. We were trying to figure out what to call the article, and there was a suggestion to call it Chomsky's version, which I think it may have actually run under. But I know that you actually bristled against that because you said the way that Chomsky is always sold in the mainstream media is, well, check out this kind of a dissenting voice, you know, check out this, you know, there's there's the consensus, there's what's real, but, you know, for your edification, for your well-balanced diet, uh, get a load of this version over here, you know, the Chomsky version. And in network, I mean, like, let's let's pretend for a moment that Howard Beale actually is a great prophet of the airwaves, somebody who, who really does have an important progressive message to say, well, like, this is how it would be sold. The company would figure out a way to domesticate the message, to slot it into a much larger ecosystem rather than let it become the dominant message. You know, the, the show positions him as, well, you know, he makes some good, he, he's crazy, he, he's, he's nuts, we don't really take him seriously, but, but you know, maybe he he does make some good points that are worth thinking about. Yeah, I want to say something about that. But on the subject of the uh, interview with Chomsky that I did, I, I did indeed run under the uh, the headline Chomsky's version, uh, which I didn't like for uh, exactly the reason you said. Although to be fair to the person who coined it, I think they were just trying to do a sort of riff on uh, Barney's version, the Mordecai Richler novel. Which had just been turned into a movie at that time. So the phrase Barney's version was very much in the air. In any case, to turn back to what you were saying about Howard Beale, I mean, I do think it's important to note here that even though uh, Howard Beale's uh, most famous rant, you know, is quite broad and doesn't have a lot of uh, specificity to it, one thing we do see him doing a lot is actually attacking the network itself. I mean, where he where his arc ultimately ends up is that he starts attacking this proposed sale of the network. I mean, he starts attacking the shareholders, the executives, uh, etc. So it's not just angry statements that are sort of uh, evocative but vague that he's making. Uh, he is actually attacking the very structures that uh, he's contained within. Well, this reminds me of, do you remember maybe about a year ago or half a year ago when Dave Chappelle was a great subject of controversy at Netflix because of the transphobia in his Netflix specials? There was a walkout one day of LGBTQ employees at Netflix and Netflix's official like queer programming Twitter account, they, they, they had an official queer Netflix Twitter account. They tweeted something like, BRB walking out. And that got a lot of pushback and a lot of people sort of dunking on it because when you're tweeting that from the official queer Netflix account, what the ultimate message is... Yes, maybe Netflix makes some mistakes at times, but it also fosters a community of robust debate. <laughs> right, Netflix contains multitudes. It's like there's this fake institutional pluralism that they're doing, as if there isn't like a central committee of executives that's standing atop the whole thing, giving sign-off on all of this. Uh, so, you know, this is what Howard Beale becomes, basically. He becomes a kind of controlled opposition. He goes on this very popular TV show that people are going to, or at least going to initially, uh, because it's the only only place where they can hear the truth. Uh, and he's saying stuff like, 
We deal in illusions. None of this is true. But you people sit there day after night, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to believe that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. And again, I mean, I guess I'm going full ad busters in this episode. But I, again, I think that all of that anticipates the way in which the institutions of, uh, you know, mass society, not just uh, not just the media, kind of take on an, an autonomous power of their own, such that whatever the constituent ingredients or inputs for, you know, a, a Howard Beale rant or something that however fleetingly captures people's imaginations and gets them fired up, uh, no matter what it is, an idea, a narrative, a rant, a current of social unrest, political demands, uh, whatever it is, all of it gets sucked up into the swirling vortex of corporate television, you know, driven by the profit motive. It gets churned around and served back as a kind of mindless, artificial, audiovisual paste that really bears no relation to the, you know, whatever constituent ingredients went in. There might have been something real and authentic and democratic uh, at the start, but by the end of the process, once you're seeing it on network TV, you know, none of that remains. And actually, there's one short monologue that I think is substantially less famous, and which actually comes at the end of the, uh, you know, romantic B story, I think puts this very well. So the character of Max Schumacher in Ending the Affair is talking about uh, the business of TV that Diane Christensen uh, is enmeshed in, and he says, There's nothing left in you that I can live with. You're one of Howard's humanoids. And if I stay with you, I'll be destroyed. Like Howard Beale was destroyed. Like Lorraine Hobbs was destroyed. Like everything that you and the institution of television touch is destroyed. You're television incarnate, Diana. Indifferent to suffering. Insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death. All the same to you as bottles of beer. And the daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shatter the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. You're madness, Diana. Virulent madness. And everything you touch dies with you. But not me. Not as long as I can feel pleasure and pain. So that, to me, is among, uh, you know, the two most important editorial statements of the film. The other one, which also appears near the end of the film, is the one given by uh, the chief corporate executive, Arthur Jensen, uh, as he's basically trying to convince Howard Beale to abandon this opposition to the takeover of the network by some Saudi conglomerate or other. Well, an important thing about the famous Mad as Hell speech is that the prescription for the viewer that Howard Beale is offering is one of self-actualization. He's saying, get out there and declare your independence from this horrible uh, media ecosystem that we've created. Uh, get out there and say that you're angry at it and maybe continue watching this show as long as I'm on it because this is actually good. That kind of rage is all well and good until he starts making more significant demands, like for all of his viewers to send letters and wires and telegrams to the White House immediately this evening, flood them with telegrams, ordering them to 
stop this acquisition of my network's parent company by this Saudi conglomerate, which in fact Howard Beale actually succeeds in getting his viewers to do. And this leads to the famous scene where he's been called into this meeting with the Ned Beatty character who delivers this short monologue that we might as well just drop in the clip here. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back! It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, min and max solutions, and compute the price cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, 
anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. So that speech to me really is the main editorial statement of the film and why I don't ultimately think it's a film that is singularly about TV, which I think is how it's kind of uh, popularly known. Network is ultimately a film about multinational corporate society, and uh, I don't think it really hides this. It's right there in that speech. But I want to turn back uh, just briefly to uh, what you were saying before we played that. Because you're right, Howard Beale's rebellion uh, is only useful provided it doesn't actually change or threaten anything. And as soon as it starts to have any kind of real world impact, it no longer becomes useful. The real message, if there is one in the famous Mad as Hell speech, is that real liberation is always going to be individualized. You know, the message is uh, if you hate society and you're, you know, you're tired of all this, uh, this crime and social unrest, you're tired of uh, inflation and economic malaise, you're tired of the stupid things you see on TV, etc., etc. Howard Beale's rant uh, implores you to go off and, you know, find your own truth. And I mean, given the broadness of the rest of the speech, I mean, that truth might as well be going off to live in a suburban gated community and, you know, not having to live in any kind of, you know, major city where you might have to uh, interact with people that you don't want to interact with or who are, you know, different from you. It means not having to be exposed to, uh, you know, perspectives and views and images that you find disconcerting or unsettling or disagreeable. It really is the most conservative kind of rebellion imaginable, and it pretty much is the type of rebellion that the right discovered in the 1980s, where they took all of the kind of uh, idioms of rebellion and revolution that people associated with the 1960s and, you know, human freedom and all the rest of it, stripped them of anything collectivist and, or transformative and just kind of repackaged them uh, and sold them back to people as an act of individual discovery and uh, self-actualization, the main forum for which was going to be the market. And, you know, sometimes on this podcast, we talk about, uh, you know, movies being prescient or containing messages that they perhaps don't intend explicitly. I don't think that that's true of Network. I mean, as you said right off the top, uh, all of it really is on the surface. And this really comes through, I think, in Beale's, I think, second to last rant. But the, the first rant that he gives after he's confronted by Arthur Jensen, the CEO, you know, who tells him that we no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, but a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable laws of business, a vast and ecumenical holding company. In Beale's next rant, he basically attempts a climb down. He appears uh, to his audience quite contritely and abandons the kind of populist rage that he'd embraced before, trading it for cynicism instead. Here and ask you people to stand up and fight for your heritage, and you did, and it was beautiful. Six million telegrams were received at the White House. The Arab takeover of CCA has been stopped. The people spoke. The people won. It was a radiant eruption of democracy. But I think that was it, fellas. That sort of thing is not likely to happen again. Because at the bottom of all our terrified souls, we know that democracy is a dying giant, a sick, sick, dying, decaying political concept writhing in its final pain. I don't mean that the United States is finished as a world power. The United States is the richest, the most powerful, the most advanced country in the world, light years ahead of any other country. And I don't mean the communists are going to take over the world because the communists are deader than we are. What is finished 
is the idea that this great country is dedicated to the freedom and flourishing of every individual in it. It's the individual that's finished. It's the single solitary human being that's finished. It's every single one of you out there that's finished. Because this is no longer a nation of independent individuals. It's a nation of some 200-odd million transistorized, deodorized, whiter-than-white, steel-belted bodies, totally unnecessary as human beings and as replaceable as piston rods. The time has come to say, is dehumanization such a bad word? Because good or bad, that's what is so. The whole world is becoming humanoid, creatures that look human but aren't. The whole world, not just us, we're just the most advanced country, so we're getting there first. The whole world's people are becoming mass-produced, programmed, numbered, insensate things. It was a perfectly admissible argument that Howard Beale advanced in the days that followed. It was, however, also a very depressing one. So the two critical parts of that, I think, are the statement that democracy is a dying, uh, decaying political concept, and then the idea that, you know, the individual is finished. There's no longer a nation of independent individuals. Instead, there's a nation of some 200-odd million transistorized, deodorized, whiter-than-white, steel-belted bodies, totally unnecessary as human beings and as replaceable as piston rods. So this is, I think, what makes Network uh, the fraternal twin of uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. I mean, Howard Beale might as well have said, long live the new flesh, because that's basically what Network is about. Oh, yes, too many questions. Do you ever notice people watch a lot of TV? They seem to change the channels constantly. What's so darn interesting that these people see? I just don't understand it, unless they're watching me. Did you ever notice morning shows? They're such a bore. Interviews with people most of us ignore. The hosts are way too happy that a new day is dawning. All they do is smile. All they say is... Good morning. Good morning. Duh. Good morning. What's today's weather? There's a small craft warning. Thank you, Joan. That's very nice. Duh. Good morning. And you ever notice daytime TV? The soaps are so complex. Daytime shows are all the same. They're preoccupied with sex. Can you live without it? That's none of your business, Phil. But we need to talk about it. All right, then, I will. 